This week at First Presbyterian Church of San Anselmo, murder, adultery, and divorce. (laughs) Pack them in, right? I decided instead to go with beyond the law because that is where Jesus takes us in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. The law in question here is the Torah, the 613 laws in the first five books of the Old Testament. In Jesus' time, there was already a large body of oral interpretation developed by the Pharisees and teachers of the law to make sure that no one would break God's law even by mistake. So, for example, to avoid taking uh, the Lord's name in vain, they refused even to pronounce God's name. To avoid violating the Sabbath, they outlawed 39 activities that might be construed as work including the healing that got Jesus in trouble on a number of occasions. Just a couple of verses before we pick up this morning, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So the law and the Torah is important to Jesus. He takes it very seriously. But what he takes seriously is that God's law is intended to lead to life and blessings, as Dave read in the passage from Deuteronomy a few minutes ago. Before they enter the land of Canaan, God admonishes the people to keep God's commandments. God says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. But here is what Jesus saw happening. Somewhere along the line, The law stopped giving life and became an end in itself. The peace and harmony with one another and God that God intended took a back seat. Obedience had become more important than relationship, love, and compassion. The people were following the law but violating its intent. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pointing to what it means to live in the kingdom of God, to be a full human being under God's divine plan for God's world. In our passage today, Jesus is saying that when it comes to the law, choose love, choose freedom, choose life. So says Jesus, it's not enough to refrain from murder. We should also treat each other with respect, and that means not speaking hateful words. And it's not enough to avoid physically committing adultery. According to the Pharisees, you are guilty of adultery if you committed the act of adultery. That seems fair enough. But Clarence Jordan makes an interesting comparison. He says, it was about like chaining a vicious dog to a tree and saying that because he'd never bitten anyone, he was a good dog. The extent of the dog's goodness would depend on the strength of the chain. To Jesus, the law was like that chain. It was good for keeping vicious people in check, but there is something even better. Taming the dog and making him so gentle that a chain is unnecessary. That is life in the kingdom of God. So contrary to Jimmy Carter's Playboy confession from a number of years back, Jesus is not saying that everyone who has a sexual impulse 
is an adulterer at heart. That would condemn every normal person. What he's condemning is sexual oppression. The ease with which any man in the ancient world, especially a well-connected one, could arrange to have any woman he wished, lawfully, her wishes in the matter being beside the point. And Jesus says it's not enough to follow the letter of the law regarding divorce. A man could get rid of divorce for as trivial a reason as bad cooking. But there were no grounds under which a woman could divorce her husband. Unless her family agreed to take her back, a divorced woman had nowhere to go and no way to support herself and her children. It is these injustices to which Jesus is objecting. Divorce in first century Palestine was not remotely like divorce in 21st century United States. Sometimes, to choose divorce is to choose life. So what Jesus is saying is that we should not treat people as disposable, and we should make sure that the most vulnerable are provided for. In his culture, certainly, but even in our world today, that often means women and children. And Jesus says it's not enough to keep ourselves from swearing falsely or lying to others. We should speak and act truthfully in all of our dealings so that we don't need to make oaths at all. Jesus uses an abundance of hyperbole in this passage, cutting off body parts, burning in the eternal fires of the trash heap at Gehenna, not hell, to get across how important it is that we choose life, just how important it is that our relationships with each other reflect life in the kingdom of God. All this hyperbole makes the passage sound that much scarier. But what's missing for us as readers is Jesus' tone of voice. Thomas Cahill writes, I do not mean to make Jesus the first stand-up Jewish comedian. But to get the tone here, one must hear the irony and something close to self-mockery in Jesus' voice. He knows perfectly well he's asking the impossible, and one must see the great crowd buzzing with confusion and observe the light dawning in some of the faces as they come to realize what it is he is really talking about. What Jesus is saying is something like this. You think being holy, being righteous, is so simple. Just follow the letter of the law. But it isn't simple. Life isn't simple. It's messy and complicated, and what matters is not that you dot the I's and cross the T's, but that you treat each other kindly, justly, like the children of God that you all are in the midst of this messy, complicated life. And the real irony is that people today take these very words of Jesus in these very verses and try to turn them into simple rules. Don't get divorced or you'll go to hell. Don't even look at a person of the opposite sex. Because following simple rules is easier than making hard choices. What do we take away from this tough passage? Well, first of all, maybe Bible study isn't such a wacky idea after all. (laughs) 
It is so easy to misread this passage, assuming that Jesus is setting impossibly demanding and inflexible rules, which, if we ignore them, will result in harsh punishment. But if you know something about his context, and even more importantly, if you read this passage in the context of the whole Gospel of Matthew, that misinterpretation is less likely. This is the same Jesus that elsewhere in Matthew saves his harshest criticism for hypocrites. It's the same Jesus that breaks the Sabbath rules in order to heal hurting and downtrodden people. It's the same Jesus that's accused of enjoying a meal with sinners and outcasts, people who are probably guilty of some of the very things he talks about in these verses, and who says God forgives people. And it's the same Jesus that says, Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. This passage this morning doesn't contradict the loving God we see in these other passages in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is saying that God isn't interested in our keeping the law for the law's sake but rather God cares that we keep the law for our sake because God loves us. Just like Dan was saying, think of the rules you make for your kids. If they're like most kids, they think you're an overbearing tyrant. But those of you with grown kids have seen that as they mature, they realize that the rules their their parents set, don't play in the street, treat each other well, Don't call people names or treat people disrespectfully. These rules were all intended to care for and protect them and to help them to get more from this life than they could otherwise. These rules help us to choose life. And the other lesson here might be summarized by Anne Lamott's observation. Sin is not the adult bookstore on the corner. It's the hard heart. When rules become more important than people, we've missed the point. We've missed missed out on life in the kingdom that God has in mind for us. And so sometimes, doing the right thing, the holy thing, the Christ-like thing, means going beyond the law, doing more than the rule requires. And sometimes, it even means breaking the rules. And so African-American protesters sat at a segregated Woolworths lunch counter. Rosa Park refused to give up her seat at the front of the bus, and Presbyterian ministers officiate at same-gender weddings. But all of us face more ordinary moments when we can decide to choose life over the rules. A restaurant manager posted an open letter on the Internet, which he begins to the woman and child who sat at table nine. He said he'd been a restaurant manager for 15 years, and his day consists of making sure the restaurant runs well. He has dealt with every guest complaint that you can imagine. He continues, A few weeks back, you came into my restaurant. I was very busy that night. I was asked to talk to a table close to yours. I did. And they said, your child was being very loud. I heard some yelling while I was talking to that table. I heard a very loud beep from a young girl. 
I started to walk to your table. You knew what I was going to ask. You saw the table I just spoke to pointing at you. I got to your table, and you looked at me. You said, do you know what it is like to have a child with autism? You were not rude when you asked the question. In fact, you were quite sincere. Your daughter could not have been more than five years old. She was beautiful and looked scared that I was at the table. She looked as though she thought that she was in trouble. In 15 years, I do not have a lot of memorable moments as a restaurant manager. I remember some guests who were mad that their burger was not the way they wanted it. I remember a woman who called corporate on me because she said I gave her regular Coke instead of Diet Coke. I remember having to cut people off from drinking alcohol, and I remember having to tell tables to have their child be quieter. However, I do remember everything about the day my son was born, how I cried when I heard him cry, how I stood there and told him I would do anything for him to be the best father possible. I remember the day I married my wife, how I cried and promised to be the best husband possible. I know what I was supposed to say when I went to your table. I was supposed to politely tell you, please not to have your daughter yell. I was supposed to offer to move you to another area. I was supposed to offend you by not offending you. I did not do any of that. Instead, I told you I hoped your meal was awesome. I high-fived your daughter and then told you that your meal was on us tonight. It was only $16. It meant more to me than that. I do not think the other guests I spoke to were happy about it. At that moment, it did not matter to me. You asked me a question that I did not answer. The truth is I do not know what it is like to have a child with autism. I know what it is like to be a father. I know what it is like to be a husband. I know what it is like not to tell your wife how much you love her enough. I know what it is like to want to spend more time with your children. Honestly, I wrote this to you and your beautiful daughter because I wanted to thank you both. You have given me a great restaurant memory, one that I needed for the last 15 years. You also taught me a valuable lesson. Sometimes, doing the right thing does not make everyone happy, just the people who need it the most. Sincerely, Tony Poznanski. Sometimes doing the right thing does not make everyone happy, just the people who need it the most. May God guide each of us in doing the right thing, the holy thing, the Christ-like thing, for the people who need it the most. May God help us to choose life. Amen.